The Tom Woods Show, episode 1118. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Hey everybody, big news. We have just announced the details of the Contra Cruise for 2018. That's right, this is the Liberty event of the year that Bob Murphy and I co-host. It's a seven-day cruise. It is the most fun you can possibly imagine. Plenty of special guests to be announced in the coming days and weeks, but comedian and podcaster Dave Smith will be joining us once again on the Contra Cruise which this year is taking place along the Mexican Riviera, October 21st through 28th, 2018. Check it out at ContraCruise.com. Hi, everybody. Tom Woods here. Today's topic is a little bit unusual, but we are, after all, on episode 1118. I think once in a while I'm entitled to an unusual topic, but it actually is a fairly important topic in economics. It just may seem a bit removed from some of the things we talk about here, and that is the question of the preferred tax type. And I know you're thinking, "Ah, what form of poison do I want? Well, how interesting is that? But what's interesting about it is that the discussion about this and the evidence that's been brought forth in the mainstream that says that people actually would prefer an income tax over an equal excise tax reveals a lot about the differences between neoclassical economics and the Austrian school of economics that we here on this podcast endorse. That, of course, is the school we associate with Ludwig von Mises and F.A. Hayek and Israel Kirzner and Murray Rothbard and people like that. And those are the good guys in the profession, in our view here. And the dispute over this tells us a lot about the way both sides go about doing economics and go about drawing conclusions. And that's really not because I prefer an excise tax to an income tax or vice versa. That's quite beside the point. But in the course of trying to negotiate this question, you find uh, there's a lot of methodological stuff that comes out. And you really get, I think, maybe a better handle on the differences between the two different approaches to economics. So I thought it was worthwhile for that reason And who better to talk to about this than somebody who's written on it extensively from an Austrian point of view? And that is Jeff Herbener, who just has a brand new article on this over at Mises.org, which I will link to at TomWoods.com slash 1118. But he's also written about it as long ago as 1988 in the scholarly journals. So uh, he's had a lot of time to think this over. Jeff, of course, is the chairman of the Department of Economics at Grove City College and associate editor of the quarterly journal of Austrian economics. Jeff, welcome back. Hey, Tom. It's great to be uh, with you again. Thanks. We are going to do our best here to cover a topic that you hit on in your uh, recent article over at the uh, Mises Institute website. On It's an article on taxation, on the ways the mainstream looks at taxation and Austrians look at it, but it relies heavily on a discussion of indifference curve analysis and the Austrians also have a methodological difference over that. Now, I want to somehow, I want to accomplish two things here. I want to convey this stuff without having to use graphs because this is an audio podcast. And secondly, I want to convey it so that even the beginner who is not heard of indifference curves can walk away with, okay, I think I have the basic gist of this, and I think I see what some of the flaws and shortcomings of the mainstream view might be. So is that, are these reasonable goals that I'm setting? 
Well, we'll find out. Yeah, we'll find out. That's right. I, I, I love your, your uh, comment before we went on. Well, if it's no good, we can always throw it in the trash. <laughs> now, that's no way. <laughs> With that attitude, where are we going to be? So, all right. Uh, now, in particular, what you're doing in the article is, is showing how the mainstream might compare, for example, the income tax with an excise tax and come up with the conclusion that people would prefer an income tax of, a, of the same amount uh, as opposed to an excise tax. And you're arguing that the method that's used to draw this conclusion is not legitimate. So, uh, and, and then also, you but you start the article with a discussion of Austrian method, which by implication you're going to be contrasting with the method employed by the mainstream. Do you think to situate the argument we need to start with that here, or is that dispensable? Well, it might be actually better to start with a uh, the context of uh, where where my article came from and uh, what I was. Uh, you know how I came up with this uh, particular great yeah um, paper, and then and then we can go in I think to the method point. You know this argument I learned in graduate school. This is uh, part of um, Milton Friedman's uh, collection of articles in uh, his essay on positive economics, and uh, we read quite a few and studied quite a few of these articles of Friedman in grad school. And so uh, I was a, uh, trained as a mainstream economist. I didn't think much about this. It seemed uh, uh, like a, a proper you know, way to go about uh, doing it in this indifference curve framework and, and so on. And, and it seemed the, that the uh, conclusion that Friedman came to was unexceptionable. And again, to give a kind of uh, basic point that Friedman is trying to uh, convey with this argument, what he's saying is that if a uh, excise tax is uh, imposed upon people, it will have a an additional detrimental effect that an income tax will not. So his idea in the construct is to give two alternative taxes, one an excise tax on some good, and then one a general income tax. Uh, and in the two alternatives, the government collects the exact same tax revenue. And then he says, if that's the case, uh, the person being taxed would always prefer the income tax to the excise tax because the excise tax does one additional bad thing that the income tax does not do. They both do the bad thing of taking income coercively from the person. Uh, but the excise tax skews the relative prices of things in the economy in the way that the income tax does not. So uh, the excise tax would, uh, let's say, be imposed on uh, electricity, and then the price of electricity would rise relative to other prices. And this would, he claims, cause a further detriment to the, uh, to the person uh, beyond just the income tax uh, or the tax revenue that's extracted by either the income tax or the excise tax. Isn't that analogous to people who say that the introduction of tax breaks of various kinds likewise distorts decision-making, like, for instance, for instance, the very popular mortgage interest deduction, that wouldn't it be better if we just had a uniform tax instead of having a tax rate, but then also the mortgage interest deduction because that skews uh, resource allocation? Uh, and there is a certain... I, I, I don't think that's a stupid argument. There seems to be a certain plausibility to that, even without getting into indifference curve analysis or any of that stuff. Is there a way for us to navigate the rights and wrongs of that claim? 
Yeah, I, I completely agree uh, with what you said. And the way in which I found uh, out how to navigate this was uh, after uh, my graduate work uh, came, you know, I studied in the Austrian uh, literature and uh, read uh, Murray Rothbard's Man, Economy, and State and then Power and Market. And he explains it in Power and Market. And it turns out, of course, that Rothbard himself was relying on the work, uh, the prior work of J.B. Say in this in this area of taxation. And what Say uh, said about uh, taxation is that the detrimental effect of taxation on uh, economic activity <clears throat> depends first and primarily uh, so or uh, in the main on the amount of tax revenue that's taken by the state. And this is because, as Rothbard would put it, the, res- the command over resources has moved out of the arena of entrepreneurial economic calculation where it can be used efficiently and placed in uh, the arena of uh, government uh, politicians and, and uh, bureaucratic decision-making where the resources will necessarily be used inefficiently. And so when we compare two tax systems, the main point of comparison is which one would generate the most tax revenue. And then there's the other question, the secondary question of how does the uh, how do people react to the uh, taxation system, and how does that then introduce further inefficiencies? And you're right, then uh, that would be where this ancillary point comes in. So this is why Rothbard always insisted that loopholes were good on net because they reduce the overall tax burden even though they would introduce these kind of secondary inefficiencies. But I suppose the two options were both were ones in which the government earns the same revenue, as in your case of the excise tax and the income tax. Right. Then in that case, why would we not prefer a general, simple, everybody knows what it is tax to, well, here's a tax, but we've got 12 different ways to get out of it, but the government still earns the same amount of revenue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's exactly what my article was uh, pinpointing. I was trying to ascertain whether or not in Friedman's uh, presentation, if it's actually the case that the government could conduct this uh, equal tax uh, alternative, uh, e- e- even as a mental experiment uh, uh, problem, right? Not, uh, you know, the, the article wasn't about whether this could be done in the real world, which would add other uh, difficulties, but whether even in the logic of the apparatus that Friedman's using, it's possible to generate a, uh, an equal tax. That, that was really the, uh, the sort of gist of what I was trying to get at uh, in the paper. Okay, so f- for that reason, then let's get into the method, because then that will show whether or not this is doable. Right. So I don't know how you, – you've actually been on the show and talked about Austrian method to some degree before, but that was probably like episode 211. <laughs> Here we are, 1118. Wow. So uh, the the intrepid listeners have no doubt heard that one. And by the way, you can only get like the last few hundred of them on iTunes right now. And there's a, well, there's a way podcasters cope with that. They have a whole bunch of different streams and each one is 300 long. And I just, I'm not going to, if you want the other episodes, they're at tomwoods.com slash episodes, including a lot of these great Herbner ones. But uh, let's talk about what we need to know about method in order to be able to critique what is about to be said to us with regard to indifference curves. Right. So the contrast is that the Austrians um, uh, begin with this uh, causal realist method. So they take the human person um, as he or she is and uh, the logic of human action 
and then uh, just work out uh, their analysis from that beginning point. <clears throat> the neoclassical uh, procedure is to rely upon a fictitious economic agent. And the economic agent is doing things logically that the human person would not do. And so this creates a different um, framework within which the, uh, the analysis proceeds and then reaches its conclusion. And in particular, in this case, what uh, the Austrians insist on is when we think about uh, marginal utility and choice and between alternatives and so on, we always think of this with respect to the given circumstances of an action. So uh, Menger's idea of marginal utility is that a person selects a unit of a good Let's say I want a gallon of water to drink each day, and then they value that unit as suitable for, I would value that unit as suitable for drinking. So I don't want to drink two gallons of water, half a gallon, I just want one gallon. And so I would place more value on that gallon than if I had two gallons of water, the second gallon uh, to which I would have to put to a less valuable use. So we get this idea of diminishing marginal utility that's a consequence of uh, real human action. Now, in the neoclassical view, that's not what's done. In the neoclassical view, the economic agent values bundles of goods. So he doesn't value each good as it's being used by the actor for a particular action and then judge the utility of that. They say, let's construct a bundle of goods, uh, good X, good Y, good Z, and then configure different bundles of different amounts of X, Y, and Z, and then see how the, uh, the economic agent compares the value difference between those different bundles. So a the economic agent could value bundle uh, A over bundle B or B over A, or he could value them the same. And so that's, how, that's their beginning point in how they proceed. And they, they have various reasons for doing this, mainly to create a kind of mathematically tractable logic that they use to draw out conclusions. All right. So once that is laid out, have they already gone wrong? And if so, where? That, that's right. So they've already gone wrong from the very first point, uh, the very first, uh, the beginning premises of their argument. They've already gone uh, down a wrong path. And then this leads them to further mistakes as they move down this path. So just to, again, take a simple illustration of this, remember there are alternatives. Uh, the way in which Friedman lays this out is a particular sequence of alternatives. So he says, suppose we have this economic agent and the economic agent is not taxed. The economic agent then chooses between these two goods, X and Y, uh, optimally. And uh, the agent has a certain amount of money income to uh, buy the two goods and so on. Then the second step is a, an excise tax is imposed on good X. This raises the price of good X. And now we let this economic agent re-optimize. Uh, uh, given that he now has less uh, real income because of the higher price of X. And also he'll substitute away from Y and toward X because uh, X is more expensive relative to Y. So that's the second step. Then the third step is, now let's give the, the economic agent another alternative where he can choose between staying where he is with the excise tax or he can choose an income tax that uh, uh, extracts from him the same amount of tax revenue. And so 
the the income tax option lowers the price of X back where it was and uh, extracts the same amount of tax revenue. And of course, in that circumstance, the um, the agent is able to shift back to good Y that he prefers relative to good X at the original price ratio. That that that's the way the argument is laid out. And what I show in the uh, in my uh, my article is that if you change the sequence, you get a different answer. And so it doesn't really depend upon comparing income tax to excise tax. It depends upon this extra condition that is not made explicit in in the argument. So the logic doesn't really flow out in the way that Friedman implies when when he works through the the, uh, argument. So walk us through then what happens if the sequence is changed. Okay, so the other uh, alternative uh, sequence would be let's let the economic agent, uh, again, optimize with no tax. Then we'll impose an income tax, so that would be the second step, and let him re-optimize given the income tax. And then we would uh, impose as an alternative an excise tax. And if you do that and you allow the person, this economic agent, to re-optimize, then the economic agent can actually lower his tax bill by moving toward uh, X. So in order to keep his tax amount the same, what the analysis is really implying is that the economic agent cannot be allowed to move from his optimal income uh, tax choice. He can't be allowed to re-optimize. So you're imposing really a second condition on this. And if you allow the sequence to proceed, then you then the government could never hold the tax revenue the same because they're giving the person in the third sequence always the choice to re-optimize. They do this in the income tax case. Well, if they do it in the excise tax case, then the income tax amount will change. Now, now that, that was probably pretty technical to follow. So let me give you a, a simpler um, example of how the sequence might go. Let's suppose we have a real human person and not an economic agent who's bound to act according to utility functions and so on. And he knows that the government is going to follow this sequence. He knows the government is going to say to him, we're going to impose an excise tax um, at some particular rate on your uh, buying of this good, whatever it is, and then we're going to let you adjust to that. We're going to calculate the tax revenue, and then we're going to give you the alternative between uh, the same excise tax and an equivalent income tax. So now, of course, what the person would do is the following. The excise tax is imposed. The person chooses to buy none of the good at all. And so the tax, the revenue taken from the person is zero. And then the person, given the income tax alternative, chooses the income tax, which would be zero. And he goes back to his optimal point. I like that guy. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah. Guy's, that guy's a human person, right? That guy's a real person. That's what real people would actually do. And uh, you can see the stilted way in which the economic agent is forced to act in a particular uh, uh, way that is really not fully human. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, that is kind of interesting. Now, I I hope I'm not totally missing the point if I ask you this, just as a, just as a question of practicality when trying to design something like this in the real world. Uh, we're assuming in a case like this that the the good on which they place the excise tax is something that the person – values and would normally be buying and already is buying, and now we're going to put an excise tax on it. But in the real world, if they were to try the excise tax route as the main source of revenue, then I could simply 
it, it could turn out that the goods they're targeting, I don't like at all. I don't care about. And so I would prefer the excise tax version. Or, for example, I would prefer the mortgage interest deduction because I prefer home ownership to other possible uses of my good of my uh, money. And so I would. So in other words, there's no, there is no uniform answer to the question because the possible preferences I could have are infinite, and the possible ways government could tax me are very numerous as well. And maybe I would choose a bundle of you know taxes and 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 uh, and tax breaks that I think benefit me and hurt other people, and other people would favor different ones. I, I get that that's not the theoretical point, but it does seem to be a f- practical one. I, I think it actually is a, both a theoretical and a practical point because, again, in the Austrian conception, we accept that there are different human persons who have different preferences and uh, you know abilities and so on and so forth. But in in this stilted uh, neoclassical approach, there there really is just one one person, one one economic agent who represents sort of all persons. And you can't you can't really incorporate this variation, or when you begin to incorporate this variation, you can't reach the conclusions that you reached before, which are that you know the income tax is always better than an excise tax for uh, for a given tax revenue. Uh, by the way, uh, this also has when you're talking about the practical uh, application of this, it has a uh, practical application in uh, American history to the original uh, federal government's limitation of taxes, uh, tax revenue to, to tariffs and excise taxes. You know, part of the reason for this was precisely to keep the tax revenue take of the government low. Uh, right, right, exactly. So uh, to see economists spinning these theoretical tales about how actually if we were disembodied spirits with you know, with, with with no human attributes, we would prefer the following system that actually none of us would prefer unless we're parasites and misanthropes is extremely disturbing, especially coming from Friedman. Yeah, right, right. That was the uh, that was the uh, sort of extra added feature of this. You know, this is coming from the pen of someone who's supposed to be uh, an advocate of laissez-faire. It's a very strange. Uh, well, so what is the what is his point in in doing this? Is he saying that look, taxes are unavoidable, so we might as well make them as efficient as possible, and also to the extent possible, make them conform to people's preferences. Let's make them to let's arrange them so that they are the least bad taxing option from yeah. the point of view of the taxpayers. Is that was his, that was his thinking? Yeah, that that's right. That's right. This is the quest for the, as Rothbard called it, the neutral tax. Right? Can we design a tax system that is neutral to the uh, production processes in the in the uh, market, or at least less disruptive to the efficient uh, production processes in the market? And the other element of the, you know, Rothbard has this great article on the myth of neutral taxation, addressing all the ins and outs of this. And the other point that Rothbard makes there is that. The, the standard literature that tries to argue for a neutral tax or tries to say, let's compare one tax scheme to another with respect to its uh, imposition of inefficiency, very rarely um, uh, pushes the analysis to cover all of the indirect effects of the tax. So they don't treat the economy as an integrated whole, where once you impose, a let's say, an income tax, then people's demands for particular products will change and 
their time preferences will change, so interest rates will change, and so saving and investing will change, and so on and so forth. None of that is in this uh, in this standard analysis either. That's interesting, and yet the standard analysis, so-called, is put forth by people who would criticize us for not being scientific enough. <laughs> Isn't it? <laughs> right? I mean, am, I, am I being unfair? No, not at all. That's absolutely right. Yeah, yeah that that's the common knock against uh, against our approach. So the the reason that you spend time in your article on indifference curve analysis is the idea that they're using this analysis to try to imagine how somebody would think about different ways, different bundles of taxation, or is it different bundles of goods they might buy and how the tax affects the way they value those goods? Right. Yeah, it's the latter. It's the, the indifference curve analysis, uh, no matter how it's applied to whatever issue, would, would uh, be based upon this bundle valuing of the economic agent. And, and, and then it's just applied to this particular uh, case in, in the Friedman article. So what is the purpose of indifference curve analysis in general in mainstream economics? What purpose does it serve? I guess, first of all, we should say, uh, I think you probably hit on this, but the try to describe the idea of the indifference curve and why is it there? And and could mainstream economics get by all right without this analysis, or is it a linchpin of something? Right. It, it it's it's a linchpin in in the following sense. Now, whether or not the mainstream can get along without it is perhaps debatable. I think there is some debate in the mainstream literature about this. But uh, I would say conventionally, it's it's a linchpin, and it works like this. The problem it solves or attempts to solve is this: every economist of all stripes, no matter what their school of thought, uh, modern economists, except the, uh, the findings of the marginalist revolution, which which is that uh, the value that people place upon uh, goods in action is subjective to the person. And it follows from this that subjective value cannot be compared interpersonally. If it can't be compared interpersonally, then it can't be the foundation for um, efficient uh, allocation of resources uh, 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 in and of itself, right? Because you can't compare the subjective value one group of people would get from using resources one way with the subjective value that a different group would get from producing a different product with those resources. And so that problem needs to be solved somehow. And Mises, of course, famously solved this by showing how market exchange transforms our preferences, our subjective rank orders of things, into money prices, which are cardinal numbers, and now we can do computations and we can make decisions about resource use through through these, uh, through economic calculation of profit and loss, but the mainstream uh, doesn't fully accept this because what they want to do is apply a mathematical reasoning to all economic theory, and in order to do this, they have to have a mathematical representation of subjective utility rankings, and so that's the you know the famous uh, De Bru uh, demonstration in the 1950s that uh, representation theorems. So you can have a preference ranking um, as long as it's of all possible goods, and that's where the bundle of goods comes from. You have this economic agent who can rank all the different possible bundles of goods, just preferring one to another 
uh, of course, in order to make the function continuous, you also have to allow the agent to say one bundle is the same as another in utility. And from that, you can generate a uh, cardinal number utility function. But the utility function would not be continuous if you didn't have the notion of indifference. And it can't be constructed at all if you don't start with uh, bundles of goods, uh, an agent ranking bundles of goods. So the Austrian take on this involves a number of critiques of the problems with indifference curves, but let's just focus on how does the Austrian think of the the acting person and the choices that he faces? They certainly don't think of him as an as a quote economic agent, and but and secondly, I don't, I don't think they think of him in these abstract situ in these hypothetical situations where he's presented with this infinite possible array of bundles of goods, they think of him as an actual person at a discrete moment making choices relating to discrete resources in particular situations. Yeah, that's exactly right. So this is uh, Rothbard's idea, what he calls demonstrated preference. So the conception is that we have an actual person in actual circumstances with ends that uh, this person has formulated and uh, access to means that uh, the person believes would be suitable to the attainment of an end. And in those circumstances, uh, given the alternative uh, available to the uh, person, the person simply uh, rank orders the subjective values, he or she perceives it, of the different alternatives, whether to buy this pair of shoes or that pair of shoes or whether to... um, as an entrepreneur to locate your factory and uh, this place with a given cost structure in that location or in a different uh, place in the world where the cost structure is uh, 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 configured in a different way. And just to make sure people don't get the wrong idea, the key I want to leave people with is not simply that the Austrians have some little insight in this case or here and there where we differ from the mainstream, but rather that thanks to Mises, we've constructed a completely different, a, a complete and and freestanding alternative to the entire edifice of mainstream economics based on this insight. Yeah, so that's exactly right. That That's really the bottom line to it all, that uh, we start with this uh, basic conception, this realistic conception of the human person, and uh, uh, Mises being the first step, and then many other authors uh, after him building on this, the entire uh, panoply of uh, economic explanation of, of the world. I mean, just think, uh, for example, of, uh, of the application of Mises' uh, business cycle theory and how superior it has been to mainstream uh, analysis of uh, cycles. So it, it isn't just a, you know, that we have a little niggling uh, complaint about how they do things. It's we have an entire uh, systematic uh, approach that uh, we think is more robust than theirs. So what's the next step for people? They should read your article, uh, which I'll link to at tomwoods.com slash 1118. They should join libertyclassroom.com where they can learn step-by-step from the beginning Austrian economics from you. In fact, my favorite part of that is I, I solicited from Jeff a course no one no one anywhere in the world has created. Namely, Jeff went through an extremely popular mainstream economics textbook used in colleges all over America, 
and did an Austrian critique of every single chapter. He did that for libertyclassroom.com. That's just amazing that you did that. I'm still not fully out of your debt for having done that. So you're, <laughs> you're going to want to do that because then you'll be able to – you say to yourself, man, I wish I knew this stuff inside and out like, like this Herbener. Yeah, well, you will if you, if you go through and, and do all this stuff. Uh, and then if you are a student, of course, you should apply – because there's probably still a little time to it. You should apply for Mises University where you can get an intensive study of Austrian economics for a week this summer. So go over to Mises.org slash events and uh, find Mises University and apply for that. And then you got a, you got plenty of reading ahead of you too. I've got a, a place uh, online called uh, learnaustrianeconomics.com that gives you a recommended program of self-education. So I guess I was about to ask you what people should do next, and then I answered my own question, Jeff. That's right. You have a better answer. So, so there you go. <laughs> All right, good. And there is some Herbener material. plenty of Herbener material in everything I just said. All right, well, thanks, uh, thanks, Jeff, and I am very much looking forward to seeing you this summer at that Mises University program. Oh, me too, Tom. It'll be great. All right, before we depart for today, let me tell you about reallyreallybadly.com. It's actually a podcast called Really, Really Badly, and I have to say I love the tagline, Helping People Be Less Terrible. It was started by two millennials who listen to the Tom Woods show, and they say, our show is all about promoting personal responsibility and being proactive, because goodness knows we could use more of that in our world today. We believe we live in an incredible world full of opportunity. We want to encourage people to take hold of their lives and create something they can be proud of. We've covered topics like setting goals, practicing gratitude, making decisions, and why motivation is overrated. We don't take it all too seriously, adding humor and levity when we can. Our culture today has gone a little screwy with the victimhood, social justice crazies. This podcast is our response. Thank you from two millennials trying to get it right. So worth checking out, reallyreallybadly.com. Interesting topics by a couple of good folks. I will list that over at tomwoods.com slash 1118. As the listener website mentioned on this episode, get your own site mentioned, but you got to get your hosting through my link. So while that site is still a glimmer in your eye, Make sure and check out tomwoods.com slash publicity. All right, tomorrow we're going to be talking about a landmark piece of legislation that everybody views a certain way. They view it favorably. They view it as wise, all-knowing public servants coming together for the common good. But it turns out that, as usual, the real accurate historical account of this is rather more mundane. So we'll be having some fun with, uh, with, fun with iconoclasm, let's say, tomorrow on episode 1119. Hope to see you then. Thanks for listening. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit TomWoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time.